0: Hey, what's up, guys? Good morning. How are we today? Doing good? All right. Everybody online? Hey, hey, hey. Uh, I don't think that there was a more grand entrance in the history of the entire world than that of Prince Ali of Ababla. (laughs) Yeah, some of you guys are chuckling. You know who that is, right? If you don't know who Prince Ali is, don't worry. I brought a picture of him for us. That's right, that is uh, Aladdin, Aladdin. Uh, He is from the uh, original book of uh, 1001 Nights, or better known, the 1992 Disney movie, Aladdin there. And in this kid's cartoon of Aladdin, he actually uses a genie to become a prince in order to Woo a princess, right? Like, guys, we do dumb things all the time to woo our princesses, right? Aladdin was no different, and what happens is this genie who's uh, voiced by the hilarious and late Robin Williams goes way overboard in this scene, this huge musical number that they put out, and, and then he's given exotic animals. He's got an entire entourage behind him, super strength, tons and tons of money, and this entire city comes out to see who is this amazing, mysterious prince, and they all want to pay attention to him. And if I'm being honest, as a five-year-old, I dug it. It was the coolest thing in the world, man. I learned sitting in my parents' basement watching my VHS tape of Aladdin that entrances matter, man, that it makes a difference in people's minds, that it is important to have. In fact, we kind of still believe this today, right? Like if you start a new job, when you show up, like, you dress well to impress, right? And you're talking to new people, your coworkers, and you're a little more chatty than normal. You're definitely more attentive. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, let me, let me hear more about that. Oh, yeah, right? And then about a month into that job, you just wanna slap Daryl if he tells you one more story about his bird, right? You're like, nah, I've had enough of this. And you just wanna, like, be in your own little shell. Or when you went on that first date with that special someone in your life, right? Like you showered, right? Some of us haven't done that. We're still working from home, right? You showered. You like put on some of your best clothes. You put something on you to make you smell good. You went out to a fancy restaurant, and they had like real linen tablecloths, and you were funny. You're never funny in your life, but on that first date, you were funny, right? And you were chatting it up and having a great time. And then about a month into that relationship, you're both sitting on the couch in sweatpants, going through Hulu, sharing a bag of Cheetos together, right? Like, it's just totally flipped. But that grand entrance, that first impression, man, that mattered, right? There's something about that that's just lasting in our memories here. Hey, we're on our third week, uh, as Carrie said, of this Jesus Is series. And we're just taking between now uh, and Easter to look at the events in Jesus's life that all took place before Easter, before the resurrection Occurred And it's an incredible thing to go through because it shows us how Jesus just reveals himself again and again and again because he is intentional every step of the way with his actions, with his sayings, with everything that he does all the way up until he defeats death on Easter morning. And we've already looked at uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead. We looked at uh, Mary anointing Jesus with oil and today we're going to spend some time, and we're going to look at Jesus's VIP entrance into the city of Jerusalem. So, if you have your Bible in the North Point app, there we're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning. Feel free to open that up. There's Bibles right in front of you as well. You can use those if you need to. But uh, the North Point app, you can follow along this week's talk. There's sermon-based questions for your life group, and uh, you can even submit questions for the podcast later on. So. Feel free to hang with us here this morning. Uh, as I said, we're going to be in John chapter 12. John uh, is the last of the four Gospels in the New Testament. In fact, uh, John actually wrote his Gospel way after the other three had already published and already sent their letters out to everybody else. And, and what John is doing is he's telling his very firsthand account of his time with Jesus. See, John was one of the closest followers, closest friends and disciples of Jesus. He's commonly referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, that's funny to me because John's the one who wrote that. So it's like, yeah, Jesus loved me, right? There's kind of something in there that makes me laugh. But, but right before this passage, John talked about uh, Jesus raising Lazarus, and he talked about Mary, Lazarus' sister, coming and anointing with oil. And, and I got to say, I showed up here this morning, and I went and looked in my mailbox, and I had a package from Amazon that said, to Jake and Mark. I'm like, who is sending something to Mark and me? Like, that's a little weird, right? So I pop it open, and somebody had sent us a a little bottle of nard, right? So if you were here last week or you watched the podcast this week, we have got some nard all of a sudden, and I am not sharing with Mark, whoever sent that. I appreciate it. It's also mine now, so thank you for that. (laughs) So now John, he's told these stories, and now he's moving into uh, talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, where over the next week Jesus is going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, and he's going to be killed all during Passover week. So let's jump into it. John chapter 12 here. Says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had to be done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So here we go. We have Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are out shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches to him. Like It had to be kind of a cool thing to see, especially from Jesus's perspective, to see all these people and, and all this pomp and circumstances and everything that's happening. But, but in some ways, as I read this, it's kind of like, what's, what's the big deal here? Like, why a donkey? Like, that seems a little weird. Why Hosanna? Why the palm branches? What's the point? Like, Jesus, you've come into many cities to teach and do stuff. Like, why is this one all of a sudden a big deal? And what is missed on us? Because we're not Jews living under Roman rule in the first century of the Middle East, Right, okay, cool. We're not. So we kind of miss some stuff here. And what we really miss is the symbolism that's at play right here. That that everything that happens here points to this idea that Jesus is king. That he's making an incredibly kingly interest that is simply entrance that is simply lost on us today. Here, let me show you. Uh, if we go all the way back to the old testament in First Kings. First Kings, we see that King David, who was the ruler of Israel at the time, is dying. Everybody knows that David is dying, and so they're doing what you would do when a king is going to pass away, and you, you, you kind of prepare for, for his death, for whatever may be coming next. And what that does is it leads to some political jockeying that's occurred inside the kingdom. See, David had promised his son Solomon that he would be the next king after him. But not everybody was on board with that plan. In fact, another one of his sons, a guy named Adonijah, decides that he wants the throne. Check this out in 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, that is a terrible name, by the way, okay? So if you have a mother-in-law or something named Haggith, I apologize, but that is a horrible name to have right there. Uh, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king, So he got chariots and horses ready, with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. There's a lot there we're not going to get into. But uh, Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zuriah, and with Abathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehida, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zohileth near Rogel. So a lot of funky names in there, right? But what's happening uh, is this good-looking wannabe king here gathers together Joab, who is the military leader, and Abiathar, who is a priestly leader, and they hold a private coronation ceremony to mark Adonijah as the next king. And he's got a small band of followers with him. Not everybody uh, has bought into this. Not everybody is following him, but he decides, man, I'm going to take the throne. He sees an opportunity and he makes a power play because his dad, King David, uh, is weak. and he's not paying attention. So Adonijah is going to steal. The throne And the prophet Nathan knows this. He knows what's going on. And so he goes back and he tells Queen Bathsheba, one of David's wives, and she tells David exactly what's going on. And says, hey, you promised my son Solomon would do this. And now Adonijah's going here. Like, what is happening? Do something about this. And so David steps in here in verse 32. King David said, call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jeheda. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. David takes some time here and he calls in Solomon uh, and he gives him his his royal mule. So think of this as kind of like every few years when we elect a new president, they have this big scene that they always show on TV where the old president goes out and they like shake hands and go get on a helicopter, which is the coolest way to like leave anything ever, right? Uh, And the new president gets like the keys and walks in and then we don't see him again until a party later on. But there's that moment where like they shake hands and there's this difference. That's kind of what's going on between David and Solomon Right here. And then David parades Solomon on like his like Cadillac donkey that he has right here, the royal donkey, which is a thing, a royal donkey. Uh, and he goes into Jerusalem to the Gihon Spring and across the Kidron Valley. Solomon is anointed in a triumphant and public ceremony, letting everybody know that he is the rightful king from the line of David. And in doing this, It shows that Adonijah is an imposter king. In doing this, it shows that Joab, the military leader, is actually not in charge. And that Abiathar the priest is really just a phony religious leader. Now, let's jump back over into John chapter 12. And we've got Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey across the Kidron Valley just like Solomon. That Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is actually the second triumphal entry, and it points back to the first, to the story of Solomon. And in doing so, Jesus is claiming that like Solomon, he is the rightful king from the line of David. And he is showing that the Pharisees of his day are phony religious leaders, just like the priest Abiathar, that the, the Roman Empire... Is, is not in charge, just like Joab wasn't in charge, but rather Jesus is king. Jesus is king. The symbolism here is powerful, and it wouldn't have been missed by anybody in the crowd. They all know that Jesus is claiming kingship just like Solomon they had prophecy upon prophecy of this day and it's one of the reasons that all of these guys are so excited in this moment see here's our struggle our struggle is this our king often changes about every four years some politician promises to bring change or to bring things back and in our hearts they become king Opportunity arises at work where where you can move up the ladder or you can make more money or you can have a new title and success becomes our king. We read about a threat to our health, a war overseas or supply lines that are backed up and and safety becomes our king. Tax money comes in, the weather gets good, vacations are right around the corner and pleasure becomes our king. Now, Now look, on the surface, None of those things are bad. None of these things are bad on the surface. But on the throne, well, then they become idolatry. Then they become idols in our lives. See, Mark pointed out last week how security and power and greed became king for Caiaphas and Judas, and that because those things were on the throne, there wasn't any room for Jesus. So my question is this. Have we placed good things... On the throne of King Jesus. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he calls out the pretenders. He has laid claim to his kingship and he has declared that he alone is worthy to rule. And that anything else that tries is going to fail. That money is going to fail. That success is going to fail. That health will fail. That protections will fail. That none of them are deserving to be king in your life. Only Jesus is worthy and deserves to rule as our king. See, another thing that's, that's interesting about this passage here is their use of palm branches. Uh, I love palm branches. And I love palm branches because whenever I see them, I am usually someplace warm <laughs> and sunny, right? Carrie was just talking about the sun. I'm a huge fan of the sun as well. Uh, We were down in Florida at a church conference a couple weeks ago, Rick and I, uh, and it was a warm, sunny, and beautiful 85-degree day, and so we decided that we needed to worship the Lord in the morning poolside, right? (laughs) right, Like all good things come from God, so we're going to take care of them. Poolside, right, and so that's what we decided to do. And, and I'm sitting in my my pool chair, and there's a, a nice breeze coming in. The warm sun is, is is on my skin, and it feels so good. And I'm, I'm actually rocking our littlest one here to sleep, and I'm, I'm kind of shushing her and singing a little bit, and and she's rubbing her eyes. And as I look out, man, I just see these beautiful palm trees, and I just think to myself, can I get one on the plane? Right? Like, can I just dig one of those up and take them home? Because man, it would be so great in January to like look out my window and just see a palm tree and think of warmth and how wonderful that would be. The problem is we live in pure Michigan where it is pure freezing, like six months out of the year. Right. I was having a conversation today and I I said, Hey, I'm so excited. Like I think I think we're probably out of the snow, And, and I could see the look in the eye, and we both laughed because every time I say that to somebody they always look at me and say, well, I remember when it snowed in April, right? It's like, oh, thanks for the Debbie Downer moments, right? We have those, right? But here's the thing, we can't have palm trees here no matter how bad we wish we could. But they did have palm trees in Jesus's day. They do have palm trees over there. And what was so great about palm trees for me is the symbolism. And in the same way, man, palm trees were symbolic as well, not for warmth and sunshine. They actually have plenty of that over there, but they are instead a symbol For victory in the Greek world. They were associated with the feast of of tabernacles in the Jewish world. They were used by the Maccabees as part of the rededication of the temple. And coins were minted with pictures of palm trees and the words for the redemption of Zion written around them. That palm branches are even depicted later on in the Bible in Revelation chapter seven uh, as followers of Jesus who have overcome persecution are waving them because palm branches were symbolic for victory. And salvation, it's symbolic for victory and salvation. And when Jesus enters, the people are acknowledging Jesus not only as a king, but as a victorious king. The crowd had just seen him claim victory over death in raising Lazarus from the dead. And now they are claiming his victory again. In the crowd, in the midst of, of waving, palm branches to their victorious king. They're also shouting out a, a word or a phrase. They're, they're yelling out, Hosanna. And Hosanna, literally translated, means save now. Save now. Originally, this was used uh, as a prayer in Psalm 118, and by Jesus' time, they're using it as a, as a praise. But, but as the people yell out, Hosanna, they actually go on to, to quote more of Psalm 118 by saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add, Blessed is the king of Israel as well. The crowd is waving palms at Jesus, shouting, save now, to their incoming victorious king because they believed, they believed that Jesus would restore them as a nation. They think Jesus is coming to restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory, like the days of David and Solomon. See, the Bible tells us that nobody really even understood what they were doing. The disciples didn't fully get it, and the crowd didn't fully get it. They're waving palms and declaring a victorious king that will, will oversa- that will save them and will overthrow Rome and will bring back their kingdom on earth. And it wasn't until Jesus is raised from the dead that the disciples looked back at this moment, and they realized, oh, man, he was a victorious king. But Jesus' victory wasn't for a new nation or restoring an old kingdom, or a single people group, but rather his victory was over sin and death. See, sometimes we want Jesus to give us the wrong victory. We have a thing in our life, and it becomes the thing in our lives that we care most about getting the victory. We want social justice and reform in our country. We want health and safety initiatives that are affordable and caring for the vulnerable. We want fair representation and election processes. We want awareness and protection for those that are marginalized and victimized by those in power. And here's the thing, every single one of those is a good cause. And it's a cause worth fighting for in our world. And our world would be a better place with a victory in all of those things. God would be pleased if we would fix those things. But they aren't the ultimate victory we want. Ultimately, the victory that you and I want is Jesus's victory over sin and death for all of mankind. See, we fight in the church because our view on a, on a belief or, or manner of worship is the most important thing. When it is only an important thing, we fight in the world because our view on, on politics or social issues or financial handlings or whatever else is the most important thing when it is only an important thing. So here's my ask: Don't stop caring about important victories, but don't lose sight of the most important victory helping others move towards Jesus. See, Jesus could have come and he could have established a new Jewish nation. He could have had victory over Rome, but it would not have been as good of a victory as defeating sin and death and evil and making a path back to a relationship with him. And don't get lost in wanting a good thing that you miss, the great thing that Jesus did. Instead, Fight for the good thing because they will help point others to Jesus and the victory that he has claimed in their life. And I want this world to be better. God wants this world to be better. But ultimately, it is about making his kingdom great and full of as many people who will worship him as possible and not just about having a better world. See, for the people in the crowd, the hope was that Jesus would be a military leader who would liberate them from oppression and would make them a great nation again. And they just had it wrong. They had too small of a view of who God is and what God's plans really are. Their their way may have been good. It may have been a good thing, but it would have never been good enough for God. Jesus shows up at this incredible symbolism of a king coming to claim his throne, but in a manner that they could have never, never imagined. And in less than a week, Jesus would be killed for his rightful claim of being the Son of God. And in the middle of all this, this symbolism, this, this nationalism, this pomp and circumstance and praise, John drops an Old Testament passage in here in verse 14 and 15. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt's donkey. Now here's the thing. This reference here is mainly from Zechariah 9.9 regarding Jesus on a donkey. And if we go back to the book of Matthew, it actually adds a little bit more emphasis to this part by referring to Jesus as gentle and riding on donkey. Donkey. See, Zechariah, Zechariah 9:9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, in comparison to the national zeal that this crowd is feeling in this moment here. John, who's got the luxury of of hindsight, an older man now looking back on everything that's occurred of where the church is at, and he adds this reference to show that Jesus came as a humble shepherd king and not a military ruler. That the God of all creation made himself low like mankind so that he could shepherd and care for and guide and lead. He is a king whose rule is not by force, but out of care and love and sacrifice of himself. And it is drastically different than what everybody else was expecting. His closest followers didn't even understand this until after his resurrection, that he came to serve and not to be served and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. That... That is King Jesus. The crowd cried, Hosanna. They wanted salvation. And they didn't even understand what they were asking for. And yet Jesus gave them something better that they didn't even know they needed. See, I think my favorite part of of all of Jesus' triumphal entry has got to be the Pharisees. In verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees are at a loss. Now I love watching March Madness, right? I'm gonna go home like most of you guys today. I'm gonna root for state. You guys are waiting on it there, right? You know, Ohio State, you're waiting, you're like, I'm not cheering. I know what he's gonna say, right? We're rooting for our teams, right? But there's something about this tournament that's so much fun, whether it's the stories, the upsets, the Cinderella teams. But in every single game, every single game, there's this one emotional moment at the end where one team is celebrating like crazy that they're moving on and the other team's at a loss. Like they recognize the the game might not be over. There still may be time on the clock, but they know it's over. And they're standing there, at a loss. See, this group of religious leaders here, this group that feels threatened by Jesus, that they're gonna lose their power and influence and good standing with the Roman Empire, they're at a loss. These men who hate Jesus and all that he claims and does is at a loss because everyone wants Jesus. The whole world goes after him. And I think John, who has written this gospel decades after all of this has occurred and after the other three gospels were written, I think he uses his wording very carefully here, very carefully. He shows that the Pharisees are despondent because the world has gone after him. And yet a few chapters beforehand, John had pointed out that Jesus came in the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And what he's doing here is he's alluding to the idea that Jesus is getting close to finishing his work while he's on earth. And there's nothing the Pharisees can do to stop it. In fact, everything that they do only furthers God's plan that King Jesus is victorious. And nothing, nothing will stand in the way of that. See, there is nothing that can stand in the way of God's love for you. King Jesus humbly came down to rescue you and to lead you. Not to make this life better, but to make a brand new life with him. And just like for the disciples in the crowds, man, he's got bigger and better plans than you can even imagine. And for some of us, that means that we gotta take a second and stop right where we're at, grab a palm branch, start waving and just yell out, hey, Jesus, save us, save us and putting aside all that this world has to offer and recognizing that only because of King Jesus and only through King Jesus can you find forgiveness and hope. For others, it just means refocusing who's our king. It can be so easy to get caught up in a swell of fear or cling to ideas of comfort or success. Man, whenever we read the Bible, you see that God is consistently telling his followers Fear not, because he's in control. Jesus promises that, hey, you are going to lose your safety, and you're going to lose your comfort by following him. It's part of the deal, because comfort and safety are not the goal. They aren't king. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is king. And when we are focused on him as the utmost desire and our utmost truth, man, then it opens our eyes. And it changes how we see the world. We become more like him and less like the world around us. See, the Bible promises us that one day, King Jesus is coming back. And he's going to bring his kingdom to this earth. And that once and for all, he's going to put an end to all evil and all sin and everything that they entail. But until then, until he comes back, you and I are given the idea that we have to praise And obey and honor and exalt King Jesus over every single thing in our life, even the important things. And when King Jesus is the only one who sits on the throne of your life, then everything falls into its rightful position. When King Jesus is here, man, I have less fear. I have more strength because I serve a king whose power has no limits, whose love has no bounds. I mean, King Jesus is on the throne of my life. And then everybody around me is going to begin to notice who I serve. And the whole world will go after him. Because people are drawn to that. The world may not recognize it, but it desperately wants and needs King Jesus. Because only his reign will bring about the end of sin and death. And that, that is the goal is Jesus is king. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we just say first and foremost, you are king. And we, we, we hail you, we praise you, we love you, God, that no matter what else in this world wants to sit on your throne, it is not worthy. But Jesus, you and you alone are worthy. And so, Father, we, we exalt you, Jesus, we praise you, Jesus, we give you all that we have and all that we are, and we set all things aside, trusting in you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.